you have a book list of 2,700 books and you read a lot, what, what drives that? Why are you such a voracious reader? Because I'm convinced that I'll never, ever be smart enough. You know, I believe that every book I read puts another tool in my mental tool chest that enables me to deal with the world around me. And obviously some are very specialized tools, but the more tools you have in your tool chest, the less chance you have you run into a situation where you're like, holy crap, I have no idea what to do about this. Life's complex. It throws a lot of stuff at you. You've got to be able to deal with it. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Major General Bill Mullen was commissioned in the Navy ROTC program at Marquette University in 1986, which began his career. He was deployed to Operation Desert Shield. In 1999, Mullen was selected to be the Marine aide to the president, so he got to rub elbows with uh, a couple different presidents. He deployed to Fallujah, Iraq from 2005 to 2006. He recently retired from the United States Marine Corps in October of 2020. He holds a BA and an MA in political science from Marquette University and an MA in national security and strategic studies from the National War College. Today we discuss far ranging topics. Bill is a voracious reader and so we're gonna talk about his book list and some of the books that have inspired him. We're gonna talk about Admiral James Stockdale, Congressional Medal of Honor winner. We're even gonna mix in a little bit of General Custer and Crazy Horse. This is gonna be fun. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Bill Mullen. Bill, thank you once again for joining me. I first interviewed Bill on the other podcast that I host at the University of Colorado called Leadership Frontiers. And we had such a good conversation that I just had to recruit uh, Bill over here to The Forge. And so let's start off with this, Bill. You know, I was trying to do the math and the numbers were just crazy. So you recently retired from the United States Marine Corps in 2020. So pretty recently, how long did you serve? Was I doing the math right? Was it like over 30 years? 34 years. 34 years. That's what I thought. That's that's a long time, isn't it? Well, but they gave me a scholarship for college also. So you had to do things for the Navy slash Marine Corps during college. So technically it was like 38 years, but 34 years of active service to the Marine Corps. Wow. Thank you for your service. And man, that's a long time. I've had guests on here that have gone 24 years and I always say that's, that's pretty good because, you know, usually after 20 years, the clock starts ticking, you know, time to get out. So you almost doubled that. That's amazing. Um, you know, something that, that comes up a lot as we talk about this idea of transitioning from, you know, the military world into the civilian world. And a lot of veterans struggle with that. How's that gone for you? How's it gone? And do you have any tips for people that maybe are struggling with that? Yeah, it was difficult because I was, as a general officer, we have a certain number of billets for general officers in the Marine Corps that's established by law. We're not allowed to exceed that. What doesn't count is if you get sent to a joint position, that doesn't count against the Marine Corps. 
It's like it doesn't count against the salary cap. But I was nominated for a joint three-star position. They picked the Navy nominee instead of me. And the Marine Corps is like, well, sorry, we have no seats left for you. It's time for you to go home, which was really abrupt. Not what I planned for, not what I wanted. But as you and I have discussed before, I, I'm a, I believe in the Stoic philosophy from the standpoint of, okay, what can I do about this? Nothing um, from the standpoint of trying to continue on in the Marine Corps. Okay, so what do I do now? And I, it still bothers me to a degree, but I've tried to put that behind me as best I can and not dwell on it. I know other people have dwelled on the fact, especially the ones that are really good colonels that don't get picked up for general officers because the selection rate is somewhere in the vicinity of two to 5%. I mean, it's really, really low. So a lot of really good folks don't make that transition, don't get selected to do that. And I know some of them have been very bitter about it and just had a lot of problems with it. And so I remembered that and I, I tried to focus on, okay, well, let's, what are we doing moving forward here? Part of that was coming to Arvada, my wife's hometown. My twin daughters live here. We knew we were going to do that. I was looking forward to that. And then the other part about that is how do I continue to get back? And that's by teaching at the University of Colorado and teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School. And both of those worked out very well. And I think there's a, there's a good message there, right? You are, you know, you spent, well, 38 years giving back, serving the country. And now you're still in that mode of service, right? Service to, well, to our country, to young folks, and still sharing that wisdom. And I appreciate that. You know, one thing that that seems interesting there is, let me ask you this, Bill. Do you believe that we should live a life without regrets? That sounds great, right? Live a life without regrets. And I had somebody kind of challenge me on that and said, if you have no regrets, you're not living life right. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have regrets? Yeah, I have regrets, but I don't dwell on them. Okay. Um, Because that's the point is it it falls into the category of, well, what can you do about it? It's in the past. Um, You can learn from it and hopefully not repeat whatever you regret in the the past, but that's about as far as you can go. But there are people that just kind of dwell on it to the point where it just dominates their life. And gee, I wish I, or I wish I'd done something different or I wish I was that person. Well, okay. (laughs) Where's that getting? And to me, it's, you know, you learn from regrets and you move on and you don't, don't really focus on, don't dwell on, you know, you've got to put those things aside and it's a, it's a mental effort to do that. It's a choice that you make instead of letting it dominate your life. Everybody has regrets. I mean, it's, it's just a part of life. I mean, there's things that you wish you would have done differently, but get over it and and move on, deal with what you can, with what you can affect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate the fact that you're bringing up Stoic philosophy because that is one of the big tenets. And actually the last, I just did a solo cast where I talked about this idea of control. What do we control? Control the controllables and understand what you do have control over in life and what you don't and let go of that stuff that you don't. It sounds easy, right? But we see it all the time where people ruminate uh, on things they can't change, they can't control. And I say that's wasted energy. I think you would agree. Well, but it also has ruined people's lives, which is oh, the yeah. important part there. I mean, I, you know, I, obviously there's no scientific data on the standpoint of how many people have committed suicide due to regrets. I suspect it's a high number or a high percentage, but, you know, the folks that haven't taken that step, but it still have let it ruin their life going into substance abuse or whatever else to kind of deal with it. That's not dealing with it. That's just hiding from it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. It, it could be as severe as you know taking your own life or just to wallow in that for a lifetime which i don't know maybe that's just a step above taking your own life because you're kind of 
you know, ruining your life over a regret. So what's your, you know, as you spent so much of your time in the military, what is the, what's the biggest lesson from your time in the service that you are now taking into the, into the civilian world? It's whatever you decide to do for yourself. The only one that can stop you from doing it is you. You know, I mean, whether it's physical challenges, mental challenges, it's that it's, you know, related to this podcast, the resilience piece from the standpoint, okay, these people are going to throw you curveballs. There may be some obstacles that you kind of trip over, but as long as you stay focused and, and keep after what you want to achieve in life, it's possible. The only time it stops being possible is when you decide, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore, or you know what, it's too hard, uh, I'm quitting. And, you know, that, that message, it's one that I try to impart to young folks because, Things seem so daunting when you're young, but if you put your mind to it, just get after it and put your head down and focus, you can achieve a lot more than you think you can. So what you're telling me, Bill, is isn't life supposed to be fair? <laughs> is life fair? <laughs> Absolutely not. Never has All been, right. never will be. And that's another one of those regrets is if, you know, what's, or the thing that people have constantly bring up, it's not fair. Yeah, but whoever told you it would be. Yeah. It's Whoever not, said that. Over it. Deal yeah. with it. I think, I, and I, again, I'm never going to pick on the younger generation, which a lot of people like to pick on the younger generation and say they're not strong, they're not tough, they're not resilient. A lot of my students have all of those. So I, I don't ever want to lump them all together. But sometimes I do see the younger generation saying, you know, life's not fair and, you know, playing the victim. And I, I think you would agree that's never going to serve us well, right? No. Life isn't fair. And, and we're going to talk about Admiral James Stockdale in a little bit here of a great example, a great role model yes. of somebody that said, I'm not going to be a victim. But somebody else, and I just finished Dr. Condoleezza Rice's no higher honor. She started in Birmingham, Alabama, in the fifties, that's where her life started out, you know, segregated, you know, horrible Birmingham, Alabama. That's what she grew up in. That's where she came from. And look what she achieved in her life because she never used that as an excuse to hold her back. I mean, just incredible. Obviously a lot of intelligence, a lot of talent, but my God, she could have just used that and very admirable person. Yeah. And what, you know, adversity, obstacles. I mean, you can easily look at those in life and just make an excuse. Well, life isn't fair and I'm just going to give up. And, you know, folks like that say, no, that's not going to be my history. And they do what most people, you know, don't think they can do. So I I appreciate that you say that too, because I often look at my students and and sometimes I, I get weird looks when I say this, but I go, I don't even know you that well, but I can tell you that you don't know what you're capable of. I would say, you know, 99% of the population, maybe not that high, but it's a, it's a high number that I think people, and I used to be one of these people. I didn't know what I was capable of. So I, I'm a big believer in let's, let's, you know, move out there and see what we can do. Cause you could be the next Condoleezza Rice or, or whatever you decide you want to do. One of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about, Bill, is that you you read a lot. And, you know, I, sometimes I think to myself, I, I've read well over 200 books, uh, maybe 250. And it just pales in comparison to what you've done. You have a book list of 2,700 books and you read a lot. What What drives that? Why are you such a voracious reader? Because I'm convinced that I'll never, ever be smart enough. 
you know, I believe that every book I read puts another tool in my mental tool chest that enables me to deal with the world around me. And obviously some are very specialized tools, but the more tools you have in your tool chest, the less chance you have, you run into a situation where you're like, holy crap, I have no idea what to do about this. Life's complex. It throws a lot of stuff at you. You got to be able to deal with it. And, you know, especially that you know, seeing how other people have dealt with it. In the Marine Corps, we call it the 5,000-year-old mind. I think the other service may have a similar thing where you can take advantage of all the things that people have done right and wrong for the last 5,000 years that we've been writing about it by reading. Or you can learn it the hard way through personal personal experience. Yeah, you know, don't reinvent the wheel, right? It's kind of the way I look at it too. Here's the other thing that, that sometimes I get pushed back. I mean, how much, so you've read 2,700 books and how much of that, do you remember? You know, I think that the researchers yeah. say like, what, we, re, we remember about 20% or 10 or 20% of a book. And so what, what it, would what would be your answer to that? Yeah, I think what it does is it, it helps enable better synthesis inside your brain. There's facts and other things floating around in your brain, most of which you're unconscious of. But when you see, when you're confronted with something, your brain starts putting things together based on your knowledge and experience, both actual experience, vicarious experience, and maybe more importantly, vicarious experience, because a lot of times your brain can't really tell the difference. You can come up with things so much faster and you don't even know how that process works. If you have a deep base of wisdom from knowledge and experience, again, both types of experience, there's things going on in your brain you're not even aware of, but you come up with things. It doesn't give you answers, but it helps you come up with answers so much faster and again, you're not even conscious of most of it. The other aspect of that is if you really, really, truly under, want to understand something, reading one or two books on that is not really going to get you anywhere. What does is you read about 15 to 20 or more books on that topic, especially if it's very complex, all from different angles. You understand it so much better than just one or two really, really good books on that one topic. I'm smiling while you're saying that because that's exactly what my answer would be. Sometimes I'm not even, it actually surprises me how I come up with ideas. I'm like, where did I, where did that come from? You know, I connect dots and this is not to be boastful. I just, and I think this all comes from the reading I do, even though I don't remember every page and and every sentence, I think it's bouncing around in my, my subconscious. And sometimes it just comes out and I just go, wow. So for anybody out there that says, hey, you know, you only retain 20% of it, Bill and I are going to say it's still in there and, and it'll come out when, when you need it. Uh, that's the way I look at it. And, I, and I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I'm a big believer in reading books. And here's the thing. I get this from my students uh, a fair amount. And they go, do we have to read the whole book? Can we just, you know, everybody wants the shortcut, right? They want the cliff notes or the shortened version. I go, no, you got to read the whole thing. <laughs> so I, I kind of well, force them in there. I mean, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, it's a discussion with the author. I mean, it's yeah. a one-sided discussion. That author's talking to you, but it's laid out the way the author wants to express his or her thoughts to you uh, as the reader. And so if you have a stilted conversation with somebody where you're only getting pieces and parts because of bad connection or whatever, how much of that do you really understand as opposed to when you have the full discussion with somebody? All right, I understand now. I may not agree, but I understand. And that's why I think reading the whole book is so much more important than reading pieces and parts. Yeah. That's kind of why I look at it too. I go, if you, if you just read, you know, there are, there's apps out there for this, right? You can take yeah, a book and, and there's an app for everything. Yeah. So they'll turn a, a 300 page book into a 10 minute read. And I go, okay, now you're at the, the mercy of the person that created those, that 10 minutes. 
what they thought was important about the book may not be what you think is important about the book. So that's why what that's, you need from the yeah. book. I mean, what's going to resonate with me may not be the same thing that resonates with you, Bill, or, or anybody yes. else. And so that's why I say we got to read the whole thing. And, and so, uh, and I like to, I like to actually hold, and we've talked about this. I like to hold a book in my hands. I'm not a big fan of the digital readers. And I don't know. I know you agree. I, and I feel like we're, we're going to, we're going to be dinosaurs <laughs> that one day you'll have oh, to I, go, I to, read a lot have to, go to a museum too. to hold a real book. <laughs> I, I, lead, I read a lot on e-readers. So I have a, I Do have you? a for okay. Years. okay. Oh, yeah. Mostly because I had to carry so many books around yeah. just to keep up. That, you know, just so I always had something and the Kindle very much helps with that. The convenience of that is nice. You can, you can carry around a lot of books, but I, but I still like to, to, to default to my, my real books. It's your comfort zone. It is. And, and maybe that's, you know, my age group that I like that. I grew up with that. All right. So when we talked before, we talked about a book that, I don't know, it's kind of, I, I've read and, and you've read as well. And it's the, the book uh, by James Stockdale. I'm holding it up. If you're watching on YouTube, the thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot and James Stockdale is a, a fascinating guy for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think he's a great American hero. He was certainly a student of stoicism, which interests me. Uh, and what he went, you know, congressional medal of honor winner and what he went through during the Vietnam war at, uh, the Hanoi Hilton was, you know, really hard to kind of wrap your mind around. I've, I've read some firsthand accounts of, of what they went through and it's just amazing to me. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Admiral Stockdale. If, uh, if you're up for that. Absolutely. One of the, I, I'm pulling a quote from his book. He says in modern life, changing the world takes precedence over understanding it and understanding man himself. And so I would ask you, Bill, do you believe that we have kind of lost that ability to think deeply about philosophical things like essentially what, what Admiral Stockdale is talking about here? Oh, absolutely. Because first of all, there's to truly understand something, I believe you need to either read deeply about it or listen to somebody else about it. If you're trying to understand another person, listen to them. I think we've lost that skill. There are too many people that are in transmit mode only. They don't use the things on either side of their head. You know, somebody once said, you've been given two, two ears and one mouth. You need to use those in accordance with that ratio to really understand things around you and listen. But the other aspect is, this facts at your finger, fingertip culture that we have now because of social media and other things, you can you can look up any fact you want and you always have your fingertips. So we're data rich, but knowledge poor. But what does that mean? What's the context around that fact? But if you can't get to either one of those things, either because you're unable to or unwilling to, how are you going to understand? How are you going to change anything? You've got a very superficial knowledge of and understanding of what's going on around you uh, and a lot of people think that's enough because of short attention spans or how, whatever, whatever else you want to attribute it to. That's not understanding. Um, that's just awareness. Yeah. So we got to go deeper, right? And and that yes. and going deeper takes time. It takes work. And patience. And, yeah. And patience. And I feel like we're becoming a society that we're impatient. We want everything, you know, yesterday, instant Inside gratification. Advice. Yeah. And, and so... Obviously, this is the the premise of this podcast is maybe that is not helping us. And so maybe a little bit, oh, you know, yeah. So a little bit more reflection, a little bit more of, of going deep into these topics, I think would, would be helpful for a lot of people. Let's continue on with, with Admiral Stockdale here. And as we talked about before we started, we talked about this idea of the Stockdale paradox. Um, 
Can you explain that for, for listeners that, that don't know the Stockdale paradox, maybe explain that and maybe how, you know, I see a direct parallel with the Stockdale paradox with what's happening with the pandemic. What yeah. are your thoughts on all of that? Well, just a little bit more background on Stockdale. He was a fairly senior Navy officer and was sent to study at Stanford for two years before he went on his first assignment to Vietnam as a, uh, a, a commander of a air group, which is uh, a number of squadrons all operating off of a carrier. And he went there to study. It was a technical, I'm trying, I can't remember the topic, but he got intrigued by philosophy. And that's where he was exposed to Stoicism, Epictetus, and others. And he said that was, of that two years he spent at Stanford, that proved to be most valuable for the, his seven years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam, getting tortured, uh, the uh, internal or uh, solitary confinement. That's the word I was looking for, two words I was looking for. But that's what helped him get through that. And the way he talked about that, especially in his book, that paradox piece was the people that didn't survive, the ones that mentally broke down the fastest were the ones that were very, very optimistic. Oh, we're going to be released in a couple of months. Oh, we're going to, we'll be home by Christmas. Oh, and then Remember, seven years of the personal war, most of the people with him spent that amount of time, in some cases longer. The folks that were optimistic that at some point we're going to go home, but for now, we just kind of kind of gut our way through it and just deal with what comes at us instead of, you know, the, the crashing disappointment of we're going to be home by Christmas. Well, nope, there goes another Christmas. Oh, we'll be home by Easter. No, nope, there goes another Easter. That just crushed people's spirit. And he, you know, there's that one piece in the book where he talks about just after his aircraft, he departed his aircraft, he ejected, he's hanging his parachute, he's looking down at the ground, looking at the Vietnamese reception committee, waiting for him on the ground and thinking to himself, okay, I just left the modern world and now I've entered the world of Epictetus from the standpoint of his ability to mentally deal with what he knew was going to happen. That, that was huge. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I remember that. You know, he credits Stoicism and his work at Stanford, just like you said, as as being one of the bigger bigger pieces for him successfully navigating that. So, yes. which is fascinating. So, this idea, you know, I look at this as okay, we we are not a prisoner of war. Let's be very clear, we're not a prisoner of war, and going through what what he went through and all those prisoners went through, which was incredibly horrible. But we're sitting here in a pandemic. Do we know when we're going to get out of this pandemic? No, none of us knows this. So I, I see a direct parallel here, and I, I think you do as well, that, yeah, have optimism that we're going to come out of this, but also know that we're just going to have to soldier on until that day comes, and we don't know what that day is. So don't yes. let it break you, I think, is, is the best advice I would give. Would you agree? Yes, but I would also say don't fall for all the mythology that's going on out there, you know, either anti-vaxxers or vaxxers or all the stuff that's going on. So many people are getting caught up in that. Instead of just focusing, okay, what do we need to do to get past this? What do we need to kind of help those around us get past this as a community instead of people just losing their minds about whether they're required to wear a mask or not? People losing their minds about getting vaccinated or not. You know, I mean, as some people, it just, they're, they've totally missed the point from the standpoint of, you know, as a society, we need to get past this. And there's certain things we need to do to get past this and be responsible about it, not fall for you know, the mythology hook, line and sinker, because it's what you think you want to believe. Yeah. You know, as an armchair psychologist, I, I look, I look at this as it, it's unfolding and you can tell, you know, there's fault lines here. People are snapping that they're, they're not able to deal with this pressure and they're doing some very strange things. The lady, what's, what's you that? See the one where the lady went into King Supers 
and she wasn't wearing a mask and they had on security camera. And then one of the employees like, hey, man, please, please wear your mask. And the lady slapped her and ran out of the store. I'm like, no, I haven't seen that. But but I just read one. Yeah. Somebody went into a McDonald's without a mask and uh, apparently he started attacking the the divider that they had up, you know, the plexiglass divider. And I'm like, what is wrong with people? (laughs) I just, I, I, you know, again, this is just, uh, we can laugh, but it's, it's actually not that funny. I like what Tom Hanks had to say about it though. You know, is ask, is asking people to wear a mask. Is that really too much to ask? Seriously? That's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, it's kind of the way I look at it. it. It's yeah, it's a nuisance. I've been yeah, through a lot worse. It's I've been through a lot worse in my life than wearing a mask and, and exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, you've been probably through a lot worse than that. Let's uh, let, let's continue because uh, one of the things that as I was looking, you sent me your, your list of your 2,700 books, which I, I love it because it's, it's, you know, alphabetized. It's all of them are rated, you know, the categories. And, and I'm like, wow, what an amazing list. And I will refer to it, but one of the, the ones that, that popped into, you know, kind of my, my vision was the book by Stephen Ambrose, C- Crazy Horse and, and Custer. I'm fascinated by both of these characters from history that, you know, they, they had a little bit of a parallel path in history and, and maybe, you know, didn't uh, have as, as good endings. Both of them ended, ended their lives probably not the right way, but, but, but. What do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that book? And, and maybe what are your thoughts on Crazy Horse? Again, I, I, Stephen Ambrose is one of my favorite authors. I mean, he just is just amazing um, the way he writes. It's just such an accessible style of presenting history. And I love his books. But uh, Crazy Horse and Custer, I mean, Crazy Horse was very spiritual. He wasn't a recognized leader of the, the tribe that he was a part of, the Sioux, but he was a charismatic leader from the standpoint of people wanted to follow him. Didn't say a whole lot, but... He, he let his actions speak for his work, you know, his speak for him. And a lot of people wanted to follow him. And, you know, it didn't work out well for him because they were trying to fight in just an insurmountable tide of people coming west. They were warned about it by Phil Sheridan. And they're like, you yeah, know, we're fighting anyways. And it didn't end well for him, unfortunately. Um, Custer, he's one of those guys that drives me crazy because of his luck. I mean, he was commissioned second. He, he came out of West Point in 1861, second to last in his class or last, second to last or last, one of the two, because he was a bit of a knucklehead, and then rose rapidly to general officer because he just did a lot of really reckless things that people called brave, got a lot of people killed, So then, it, and it was re- rewarded for it by brevet ranks, which means it's an award for bravery. Um, they promote you to, you know, you're not officially at that rank in the Army, but um, for the purposes of the war, you're wearing that rank. All the way up to major general by the by the end of the war, which was four years after he graduated from college. And then he became an Indian fighter. And he, he did a lot of stupid things there, too. I mean, you look at the battle that that book talks about, uh, Little Bighorn. He was warned by his boss, hey, don't go diving into this. That We think there's a lot more Indians out there than you may believe. He was warned by his scouts, hey, there's something wrong here. There's there's way too many of them. The camp is way too big. And he ignored all of them and dove right in. And some people attribute it to he had presidential aspirations. Hey, one more big victory and I'm the man. I'm going to be, you know, they're going to make me president. Um, and he led about 200 folks to their death because of his inability to listen and use common sense. It drives me crazy. Can we say that's the, I mean, what's the lesson from this? You know, maybe, well, you know, as leaders, you know, here's the, here's something that I want to throw out there is, 
Is ego a good thing in leadership? You know, one of the the things that that I like to talk about is ego is not all bad. I like to say that that's where our self-confidence comes from. And I want that in my leader. I want them to be self-confident. But where does ego get us in trouble? And and maybe it got Custer in trouble. What do you think? Oh, yeah. To me, ego crosses the line when it becomes more important when, when you personally become more important than any other consideration. When it's all about you all the time and when it drives your decision making at the expense of everything else, that's that's when it just becomes ridiculous. And I've seen it many, many times, both in my readings and then in actual life experience. One of the things that I tell young leaders is, hey, your biggest impediment to your success will be your own ego. It is necessary uh, to have ego. So you have a sense of self, some self-confidence, but when it starts driving everything, you're just going to drive people away and it will not end well for you. I guarantee it. And I've seen it over and over and over again. That's, I think that's good advice for all leaders out there. Let's go back to James Stockdale as, as we, we start to wind up here, you know, another quote from the book, he said, the only way I know how to handle failure is to gain historical perspective, to think about people who have successfully lived with failure. And so what are your thoughts on not only that quote, but failure in general? How do you frame failure? Failure is a necessary part of life. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. It's happened to me many, many times over the course of my life. It's not what happened, but it's what you do, what you do about it. That's important. How you deal with that. Do you learn from it and move on? Or do you let it dominate your life? You know, Thomas Edison is famous for, you know, working on the light bulb. He goes, yeah, you know, before I actually found the one that worked, I found over a thousand ways that it didn't work. But I kept at it. I persisted until I finally was able to make the light bulb. And that's the thing you come across in history over and over again. I mean, Ulysses S. Grant was a complete and total failure. And some people think an alcoholic right before the Civil War started. um, And he got somebody recognized, oh, you've got West Point experience. When they started forming volunteer regiments, they put him in charge, but he had common sense, didn't lead with his ego. He kept, he was persistent. He ended up being president of the United States. He was the general that won the war for the North and then became president of the United States. And in 1960, or excuse me, 1860, he was working in his brother's, he was clerking in a leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, and was widely seen as a total failure. He dealt with it. He overcame it. Some of it was opportunity, but you can't let it kick your ass. I mean, you, you've got to be better than that. You've got to be bigger than that. Yeah, I think, you know, being, uh, you know, persistent, bulldog determination, as I like to call it. You know, and, and there's a lot of lessons, uh, or not lessons, but the stories of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Same same thing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he had yes. A lot of... I mean, the, the guy was never really the top of anything. He lost he lost elections before he, and some people would call him the greatest president we've ever had. So I but think also that's- a reader. He had yeah. less than two years of formal education, but was probably one of our wisest presidents right when we needed him. I, I, yeah, I don't think we can emphasize that enough. I, I believe that leaders should be readers, and I'm not the only one that thinks that. And I know you're on board with that as well. I think we should be students of history, students of life, and be observant, curious. So all of those things, I think, will help you be a better leader. So I like the way you frame failure, though. It's part of it's part of the game. And uh, what do we learn from it? And how do we move on? And just stick with it. I think it, it all comes down to that idea of just stick with it. Just keep moving forward, right? As we wrap this up, this I, I could I could talk to you for a while, Bill. But but as we wrap this up on the topic of failure, since we were just talking about it, let's let's go there with our signature question. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? 
Yeah, when I was uh, about a mid-grade uh, Marine officer as a major, one of the attitudes you get in the Marine Corps, probably other services, is I'll sleep when I'm dead. I can just keep going. I'll just keep going, pushing, pushing, pushing. When I was training reservists in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I got back in my alma mater. I was getting a master's in residence. I was training reservists, which you have to set everything up for them busy job. And I was working on a couple other things and I was sleeping maybe four to five hours a night. My, my kids were in kindergarten and first grade, second grade. I was not a good person to be around. I was irritable because I was way overtired and just kept pushing to the point where we went on a trip with the reservists, taking them out for their summer training. And I broke out in a really bad case of hives and was essentially in the hospital for a couple of days. And it was all fatigue. I pushed it way too far. And as I normally do, I'm like, well, what the heck just happened? And I started reading about it. You know, the, the, the accumulation of sleep debt and fatigue and the negative impacts that it has on you. And frankly, it was a failure on my part, but I lucked out because A, my wife put up with my crap and didn't say, you know what, you're an idiot, I'm leaving. My kids didn't really hold it against me. I, I was irritable. I was not a nice person to be around for a lot of that time. And by reading about it and understanding what I did and paying much more attention to ensuring that I got as much slip as I could. It just, and we, we have a very similar issue with a lot of people because in reading about it, sleep debt is an enormous problem in, in American culture because um, people have so many other things they'd rather do than sleep. And it's car accidents, it's, you know, health issues. It's, there's a whole laundry list of things that most people don't pay any attention to. And I like to think, because I did three combat tours with, you know, getting six to seven hours of sleep a night, not always, but for the most part, because I was trying to make sure the tool I was using to make life and death decisions was as fresh as I could keep it instead of being run down, foggy. You know, when you, when you're really, really tired, you get depressed more easily, you know, difficulties become insurmountable in your mind. Everything is more difficult and you're making poor decisions and people's lives are on the line. And so I, you know, I like to think I learned from that. And luckily I didn't, you know, didn't have any lifelong consequences from it uh, in a negative way. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.